Good morning time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. And what do these things, what do these animals, these forms of life have in common? Serrated tusk, zebra mussels, St. John's wort, uh, carp, foxes, mosquito fish. Yes, they are all invasive species of some sort. And of course I have been polite enough to, not to mention the other one, humans. <laughs> and there's a couple of humans occupying this studio here in uh, 2XX on the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. And today we're going to be talking about snails. Yes, every time I look around there's a new kind of invasive species. And our guest today on Fuzzy Logic is Adrian Dusting, who is a PhD student at the Institute of Applied Ecology at University of Canberra. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning, Rod. How are you? Adrian, when you look at those little snails, do you think you cursed blighters? What are you doing here? What are you doing in our country? Uh, a little bit. I mean, you said it before, there's a lot of invasive species in Australia. And... Um, if there was a score for invasive species, we'd be doing quite well, but it's rather an unfortunate, unfortunate score, really, isn't it? It is amazing. Let's, let's introduce our snail first, because uh, our listener won't know this snail. I never knew about it until uh, I had contact with you a couple of weeks ago. What, what is this snail? This is the New Zealand mud snail. So the scientific name is Potamopergus antipodarum. Just a bit of a mud, uh, bit of a mud snail, a bit of a mouthful, <laughs> and so we we use the common name New Zealand mud snail. Um, goes under a number of different names across the world, but in Australia, um, it's been here since the 19th century, and we know it as the wow. mud snail. Well, well, we'll go into the biology and the history of the snail in a moment, but just I want you to say the name, the the, the biological name, slowly, so that when we let's pull it apart and see what it actually means. Okay. Um, Potamopergus, so that's the genus. Um, Potamo is quite like uh, hippopotamus, the, the same pronunciation there. Please don't ask me the exact meaning. I'm sure someone out there does know, but uh, Potamopergus. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the species name is Antipodarum. Uh, Antipo as in southern? Yeah, like the Antipodes, yeah. Uh, ah, okay. And so this little snail, but do, what, what does it look like? Um, so it's only in Australia, it's four to five millimetres long. Um, it does vary depending where you, where you find it. But um, in Australia, four to five millimetres long. Sometimes it has um, spires, sorry, um, sometimes it has spines, beg my pardon, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, it's got a, what's called an operculum, it's like a trapdoor on its shell. So if you pick it up out of the water, it's a freshwater snail, uh, if you pick it up out of the water, it'll retreat inside its shell and draw that operculum shut. That's so a, little, trap a little trap door. Yeah, that's right. So it's a, it's a traditional spiral shaped thing, a bit like you know, you'd know you find down on the rocks down the coast or the one in the garden snail coil thing. That's right. So coil, lots of coils, um, usually four to five walls, they're called, W-H-O-R-L. Um, the coils, on, uh, and it's called a spire shell. Uh, so it's quite a long, elongated, ah, narrow okay. shell. Um, so whereas the ones you find in your garden, the helix, um, they're quite round. Um, quite squat. Quite squat, yeah. And they're actually also invasive, I believe. I think they come from Europe, the common garden snail. Yeah, quite quite possibly, yeah. There's, there's a number of different snails that have actually flown under the radar, I think. 
um, because obviously we, we notice the predators, we notice foxes and things like that, but uh, snails and other invertebrates tend to sneak in under the radar. Yes, yeah. yes, uh, that, that, that pattern appears right across forms of life, so when we're talking about saving some form of life in a national park or whatever, if it's the cuddly, the, the, the cute, the fairy thing, then it gets the attention. But mm -hmm. if it's, if it's say, like a kind of fungus or something that lives only on the tree and, and you never see it on the surface, then it doesn't rate a mention. That's, so that's so this, right. this little snail is it's quite small. It is, yeah, four to five millimetres in Australia. Um, in its native range, we find bigger bigger snails, um, so up to 11 millimetres in size. Yeah. Um, but they seem to be more limited in size in their now, invasive range. These things hopped on a boat, they bought a ticket, uh, flew to Australia, 18, when did you say they were, we, we think they go back to? Turned up in Tasmania, we think, first reported in the 1870s, uh, on the mainland shortly afterwards, and then they around Melbourne kind of area, and then they spread, so we now find them roughly along the coast from Adelaide right around to Sydney, and they're well and truly across Tasmania as well. Um, how they actually got here? That's an interesting story. There's a couple of hypotheses around that, and um, part of what I'm looking at is actually investigating that. Um, the theories go from everything between um, being moved around in ballast water, um, or even being moved around with the fish uh, that were carted across to Australia and to the US, because we find them there as well. Um, this is for, like like trout, the yeah, trout, like trout um, for acclimatization. What do they call it? Yeah, for commercial fishing stocks. Right. And so sometimes we either it's been suggested that we either moved them around. I say we, humanity should <laughs> take responsibility for this. Um, we moved them around either with the fish themselves, like in the water that we they were contained in. Um, their young might have been moved around with eggs of these fish. Or it's possible that they actually moved around within the fish themselves. Now, when you said the first one was found in Tasmania, what, 1870? Yeah, 1870s. Um, yeah. So did, was it some naturalist, you know, whether, or was it, was it found after the time in a, in a specimen or something? Was someone reported it at the time? Did... That's right. So um, the, that record actually comes from one of the museums in Tasmania. It's a preserved specimen that was found in the 1870s in, in Tasmania. Um, though a lot of those specimens still exist actually, but... Uh, so it, it was in a collection somewhere? That's yeah. right, yeah. Ah, now, isn't, isn't, so at the time when the thing was collected, mm -hmm. a fair chance that whoever collected just went, oh, that's a snail, don't know what it is, I'll just put it in the jar and stick it in the, sh in the, in the drawer. Something is, that's sort of something like that, do you think? That's, that's exactly right. So a lot of our records from that time come from, I guess, what you'd call amateur scientists going out and making collections um, across different areas. And so in that way, we can't necessarily rely on 1870s as being the first time. It's that just the first, first known the one. First time. That's right, that's right. And invasions are, by their nature, silent. We tend to notice them after they've already occurred. Um, we're actually quite bad at predicting invasions in advance. And so, again, we, are, we only notice them once it's often too late. Well, how, and anyway, if you just picked up some random snail, how would you know that it was invasive? You'd have to do some pretty serious forensic sort of work uh, actually, no, this, this kind of tapped in uh, last week. I met up with my friend who is the naturalist at the Australian Museum. Ah. 
and this would tie he would he would latch right onto this because he would say well there's the value of the collection that we have uh, in our museum and who knows what value it is at the time you just stick it in a drawer and catalog it if you have time and then someday way down the track there it is that's wow. it and there's a fantastic website called the atlas of living australia i think it's uh, atlasoflivingaustralia.org.au and a lot of the contributions to that website are made by citizen scientists and they're, they're occurrence records of particular species and sometimes they're verified to different extents um, you know by people of varying uh, professional abilities. It's a different degrees of certainty on the on the quality of the, of the collection and so on. You mean? That's right. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of them are from museum samples that date back, even like our Potamopergus sample that dates back from the 19th century, and they've later been verified by experts in the field. And our snail, in particular, needs that kind of expert opinion because they're actually morphologically near identical native Australian species. So I said before, our genus here is Potamopergus there's an Australian species called Ostropergus. And morphologically, oh, you'd call it a dead ringer, I reckon. <laughs> um, it's only once you get it under a microscope and you dissect off that trapdoor, the operculum, yeah, yeah. Um, that you can see underneath it, there's these couple of tiny pegs on the Ostropergus operculum that the Potamopergus don't have. And so that kind of expert opinion is needed in some cases. But absolutely there is a massive value in those contributions from amateur scientists go out, going out collecting and storing um, uh, and, and I'm hearing in the science news that uh, taxonomists are becoming a, a rare breed dare I say and this what you're talking about here is the value of, of taxonomy I think yeah, absolutely yeah t t tell us a little bit about the biology of the snail so it's this little spiral thing four millimeters What's it eat? What's, what's its breakfast? Um, it's a pretty good generalist, actually. It's quite good at eating lots of different things. Preferentially, it'll eat algae. Um, so it'll go along the bottom of a stream uh, or lake and uh, scrape the algae off the rocks and the substrate there. It'll be raspy tongue like a cat. That's right. Uh, it's got a radula. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And how, how long would it live? Um, the only live for a couple of years but the thing is that makes the thing that makes them a great invader is that they're able to reproduce at a very young age so we think after three to six months depending mm. on the environmental conditions in which they they uh grow up they're able to reproduce sorry they're able to reach maturity become sexual only, maturity right that's right after only three to six months and start pumping out young straight away and, and are they prolific they are they're very very highly fecund so they reproduce in large numbers and almost continuously. Um, it's a very interesting system actually because in the invasive range we only find asexual snails. So females that need no male to reproduce. Um, they simply clone themselves over and over and over. And you can imagine if you're gonna if you're gonna reproduce in that way, that's a massive advantage if you're invasive, because you don't need to find a mate. You can just arrive in a new system and start pumping out young straight away. So they do they need to have sex to reproduce? I mean, you said asexual reproduction, but that means that a solo snail, a single specimen, is That's enough right. to reproduce. That's right. So theoretically, a single female could arrive in a new location and okay. set up her own population just through um, pumping out live young. So they, 
so that their eggs develop as if they're fertilised um, without any presence of they fertilise reproductive material in effect right. I guess that's right, right. and so they um, and the young come out already alive and crawl off and within three to six months are producing their own young oh really so they don't lay little leg sacks or uh, coat the rocks with their eggs they no which is another advantage because that means that there is no egg stages egg stage of the life cycle that's being exposed to environmental conditions Wow, mm. <laughs> it's effective if you're, if you're an invader. That's for sure. Now we, we we're going to get to the adult sealed section of fuzzy logic and snails <laughs> shortly. <laughs> we're going to get down and dirty talking snail sex details in a moment. And our guest today on fuzzy logic is Adrian Dusting, who's a PhD student at the Institute of Applied Ecology at the University of Canberra. So. These things eat slime, they reproduce without uh, that little spark of the, uh, the other snail. But just go back a little bit to the morphology, to use the technical term, or the appearance mm -hmm. of this thing. Okay. Now you're saying that in Australia they look like, they look different, or they're not all the same as they are. There's, there's different varieties in New Zealand, where they come from. That's right. Well, they're, they're different across the invasive range in Australia, but they're different across the New Zealand native range as well. Um, and so, again, sometimes we find them with spines sticking out of them, um, which are a great adaptive mechanism if you're brought up in the, um, with, with predators around, for instance. Oh, so th these spines are a deterrent for a predator, are they? That, that's that's one of the theories, yeah. And it looks like that's the, it looks like that's the case. And they're what's called phenotypically plastic, which means that their um, how they look, their morphology, as you said, um, can depend on the environmental conditions around them. Right. Okay. And in, they've found that one of those condi environmental conditions might be the presence of a predator. So in the presence of a predator, we find greater prevalence of these spines on the snail. So they adapt their shape according to the environment they're in. This is without changing their genetics. That, that's certainly what this suggests. Right. But, so, but in New Zealand, you were saying that they're physically larger? They, they come in different shapes and sizes? They do, yeah. So yeah. in New Zealand, they come in different shapes and sizes. They're much bigger. Um, and we find those spines uh, uh, are larger as well. Um, the other thing that differs in New Zealand, across the New Zealand populations, is that we find sexual New Zealand uh, as well as asexual Patamopergus living side by side. That's really, really strange. It is, Isn't it? and it seems to be some kind of um, seems to be related to the presence of parasites. So before we talked about adapting to your um, particular environment, if where there are trematode parasites present we tend to find um, more sexual sna um, pop snails. So a larger percentage of the population reproduce sexually, which seems to suggest that there's some kind of evolutionary war going on there. And that, that makes sense. I mean, we, where we tend to find... I know we'll talk about sex and asexual relations a bit later on, but um, where we... Uh, find really stable environments, really predictable uh, environmental conditions. It's great to be asexual because you can, you don't need to adapt, you don't need to evolve. You just, you've hit the perfect genotype. You keep reproducing yourself. So it's, over a, it's a formula that works. Why, why mess with it? That's right. But if you're in a really disturbed environment, a really unpredictable environment, and you need to adapt rather rapidly, 
as a species, being sexual, reproducing sexu um, sexually, is going to create greater genetic diversity, increase the chance that you're going to encounter an adaptive. So that so this is a testable hypothesis, isn't it? So you, could you create a tank? put the parasites in with them, change the predator relationships, and then see whether you, you witness these changes in their, in their shape? Absolutely. And yeah. that would be a really neat series of experiments to do. To be honest, I, I even tried um, bringing some live sexual uh, Ptamopergus into Australia. And funny enough, um, it's not that easy to import invasive species <laughs> into Australia. <laughs> I'm, glad, um, I'm glad about that. that absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not a bad thing at all. But uh, yeah, that, that would be a very neat series of experiments. And, th and that's telling us something not just about this snail perhaps, but do you think it's a, it's a fundamental thing about what sexual selection is and why it exists? Would you, would you agree? I, I, absolutely I would. I mean there is a real cost to being to reproducing sexually. Um, males are expensive and potentially useless if you're affected by well, we an asexual We need uh, toys, you know, our cars and... Uh, <laughs> that, that's right. I um, should be careful how, what I say here, I guess. But, um, yeah, the, there, there is a cost to sex. It, it, producing males uses energy, it uses resources. Why do it if males can't, can only produce a limited number of um, young? Through, and and then, even then, obviously only through a female. Um, and this, this, this is probably gets to the core of it. It's about adaptation. It's about providing that genetic diversity. Um, so you're more, in li more likely to encounter a uh, um, positive, like a, a oh, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a genotype that um, is better suited to the environment. Yeah, and imagine the cost is not just the energy, but the failed offspring type as well. So if you get a, vari a variation, one variation might not be successful. That's right. And that, that, that in a sense is a cost, isn't it? Because it didn't work. Yep. And I had to build this thing. Uh, I think, you know, we were talking before we went live about um, economics. We were, yeah. And, and ecology. Um, and the two are really very similar in many ways, aren't they? Because ecology is a, a kind of economics, isn't it? That, well, that's right. I mean, if, when you go through an economics degree, you look at trade-offs. So you build these neat graphs that show, okay, I've got a limited number of resources. I can allocate this much to X or this much to Y, I can't have my cake and eat it too, basically. Yeah. Um, and in ecology, as an organism, you do that too. You have a finite amount of energy and a finite amount of resources, and what you invest in um, depends on what evolutionary outcome you, you're after. Yeah, and it may be the difference between you surviving or you not surviving because you over-invested in that shell, That's right. and the shell is very expensive for you to make, and it was didn't help you so you've wasted that energy and you get out competed by the guy with a thin shell who breathes much faster that's right and i, I think that's the scary thing like e economics we can we can model those trade-offs and make decisions based on them but of course evolution's somewhat more blind than that so you're you're making trade-off choices i'm putting that in inverted commas yes yeah. um but of course the selection force isn't necessarily what's well, so theoretically in, in economics it's a conscious decision that I will try this option because there's some sort of logic that, that says we think is, this might work is that sort of what you're saying and, yeah. we, and with evolution it's just random variations on a theme that's right which of course across evolutionary time work towards potentially the most optimum model ah 
Wow. Now, who would have thought we would end up discussing economics <laughs> and here you are a PhD student uh, on snails, on invasive species of snails. I think we might break to a track and when we come back, let, let, let's talk about um, what, what the impact of these snails is and why should we care about the little snails other than the fact that they uh, do or they don't have sex. Now you've chosen the, this track and it's a classic, I haven't heard it for a long time, really pleased to hear this. This is Cream and what's this track and why have you chosen it, Adrian? Crossroads is the track. Um, why I've chosen it is simply because I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what other reason do you need other than you like it? Well, here we are, Crossroads, our 2XX Fuzzy Logic. a bit of cream, a bit of classic cream here on 2XX and the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. And today we are nominally talking about snails, but actually we diverge into sex, which is a good topic always, economics, uh, the environment, ecology, and uh, well, all sorts of things with our guest today, who is Adrian Dusting, PhD student at the Institute of Applied Ecology at the University of Canberra. And now we're talking about this little snail who's named the hippopotamus something or other, which I can't... <laughs> the, the, New, the New Zealand mud snail. <laughs> uh, I won't attempt its uh, biological name. But uh, so we've got this invasive species that arrived in Australia around about, well, before 1870 uh, in the ballast water of ships, maybe, or inside the gut of a fish. Uh, actually, before we go on to the impact of this uh, organism, Adrian... Um, let's just talk about how it would survive a journey through a fish because it's quite an interesting little little snippet in its own right how, how would that work yeah it's it is quite an interesting characteristic i mean if, if you again if you're going to be an invasive snail this is a good thing to be able to do so i referred before to the operculum the trapdoor if you like on their shell they can seal it shut so effectively that they can block out the chemical environment around them to the point that there was this amazing experiment that showed that uh, they could be gobbled up by trout and around half of them would pop out the other end, if you like, and uh, instantly just crawl off to the point where they were even reproducing, you know, popping out their own young within an hour or so. So clearly very little adverse effect at all. So they just go, oh, that, you know, that, that was really gross, and uh, oh, where was I? Yeah. Reproduce again. That's it. I mean, their, their shell is thick enough and their operculum thick enough and the seal around it tight enough that they, um, they don't yeah, get affected by the chemical. And, and, they, and they get a little, possibly a little bonus journey of being, being transported. Well, that's right. Um, e either internationally is one idea or... Um, even within systems, so up upstream, um, because being snails, they obviously don't move that fast. There was one study that showed that they can move as rapidly under their own steam as uh, one kilometre per year, I think it was. <laughs> um, so it's a long journey up the Murray. If you're going to do it by yourself, it is. But if you can hitchhike on a fish, then you can do it much more effectively. Do, do, would a trout eat these things deliberately, or, or would it just be happen to be attached to something uh, uh, just caught the snail by chance 
Um, I guess both, but they certainly do pick off the snails with the intent of having a meal on snails. And I mean, we referred before to how effective they were, the snail was, as a reproducer. Um, they quickly create very large, very dense populations. And to the point where some of the documented populations are around 850,000 per square metre. Now, if you're only half a millimetre long, sure, you're tiny, but at 850,000 per square metre, you're still covering the substrate. You're on top of each other. You're oh, in really? the stream bed and everything. Oh. Yeah, they're, they're all over the place. And so trout will happily go down and chow down. Um, uh, a mouthful these, of these snails. mouthful of these snails. But, and I guess this ties into one of the impacts the snail has. They um, provide little nutritional value for the trout if they're not actually being digested. They're just popping out the other end and um, the trout are getting very little benefit from them. Well, the trout themselves are invaders, of course. But we well, yeah, that's right. But, uh, but are any other sort of fish as well? That's so they're, they're, what, they're carpeting the, the floor? Are they on muddy or rocky um, surfaces? What sort of... We find them across lots of different surfaces. We do tend to find when they're in fast-flowing streams or in very cold climates, they tend to be more burrowed down in the substrate, mm. so in the stream bed itself. Um, but when I go out looking for snails, snail hunting, if you like, I um, typically just turn over rocks. So you pick up a rock, turn it over, and they'll be covered in these snails if you go to the right place. Okay, so, so one impact is that they're having the fish... In, in imported or otherwise of a, a nutritional value uh, are they crowding out other species as well? That's right, so you, you can imagine at that kind of density and size of population you're quickly eliminating the potential for other species to be present you're taking all the food resources and you're taking all the space and a lot of different macroinvertebrates so all the little bugs we find at the bottom of a stream um, rely on the substrate. They rely on that space at the bottom oh, the of the stream. Fly Caddisflies, mayflies, stoneflies, mm. all the lots of, lots of different little bugs we like to find when we go out to streams. And instead, where these snails are present, we tend to find just this snail, and in very large numbers. Um, I said 800,000 before. In Australia, I should say, the largest population we've found, the density is more, more like 40 to 50,000 per square metre. But you know, it's possible we have. That's still a lot of snails per in, in one square metre. It certainly is. Um, the, that study was actually quite interesting because they went on to find that the snail was possibly actually facilitating other native snails. So they're not always necessarily having a negative impact on the um, macroinvertebrate community, but largely we do find that's the case. So um. there was... Uh, there's been a bunch of studies done on this is this whole area is called community ecology I guess um, and there's been a number of community ecology uh, research projects done in the west of the United States um, unfortunately they've they've gotten into Yellowstone National Park which is obviously an area of incredible environmental importance and there's been a number of studies in that area have found that the kind of situation where, that I described before where we're only finding this snail when they're present in those systems. So they're, they're affecting the diversity of the environment that they're inhabiting? That's right, yeah. So, uh, so they're in Australia, they're in the US, in Yellowstone. Where else are they around the world? Um, in the scientific literature, they've been published as being present in Japan, 
um, so and parts of Central Asia as well, so in Iran um, and Iraq, uh, right across Europe. Okay, so they turned up. We know they turned up in the UK around the same time as they did in Australia, so the 1870s, 1880s. Um, but they've since been found on the continent as well, right across to Eastern Europe. So these these things are a global pest. Uh, yeah, absolutely, they are. They are. You, you know, Adrian, I had, I had no idea because w- w- when um, uh, you know, we talked about you coming onto the show, uh, I was thinking a little snail. Oh, yeah, you know, okay, it's a small snail. So what's the big deal? But this actually sounds like it's it's fairly significant worldwide. It, is is it right up there with the um, what's it, the zebra mussel and those sort of things? It is. Um, the zebra mussel has a more direct impact on shipping and things like that, and so like all things in a commercially driven world, um, they have a more direct economic impact. And so that's why there's been a bit more research done on zebra And they're more obvious. They're more obvious. You can can see them, pick them up. Um, The... A lot of the research around zebra mussels has been done in the Great Lakes, but we also find our snail, Potamopergus, in the Great Lakes in the US as well. Because the zebra mussels clog up intakes and all that sort of stuff, right? That's right, they do, and they they attach to shipping and to shipping infrastructure and things like that. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is true, but I I seem to recall that they were found in Darwin Harbour, and they were so alarmed that they actually chemically nuked a whole area of the harbour just to, just to get rid of them while they could, while before they got away. Yeah, they, well, that's right. As soon as they get out of control, then they're uh, potentially disastrous. But, I mean, you talk about clogging up drain pipes, and uh, there have been reports of uh, water pumps being clogged up by New Zealand mud snail. Um, and, you know, even, even turning up in the domestic water supply. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, crikey. Uh, what's your attitude to these things like um, I know people I've heard talking about researchers into like the cane toad Australia's least loved pest invader and and along there with the carp and um, you know they're they're disgusting they're ugly but some of these people just have a kind of a an admiration for these things like do you have like a a, just just secretly we're just talking to the microphone just, just 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 you and me I, I, I can't help being a little bit amazed at the number of ingenious uh, mechanisms they have for being so effective as an invasive species. Um, there's also something to be said for um, the idea that invasive species might be able to invade areas that other species can't that, and, and have a positive effect there. Okay, so what I'm going for there is the idea that um, we tend to find our snail in areas that are really degraded. So agricultural systems that are massive, like massive nutrient loads, um, already all the native species have been effectively knocked out of the system. You just find really, really highly tolerant species and very few of them. So already we don't have this nice broad picture of biodiversity mm. that we as freshwater ecologists like to see when we go to a stream. Um, there is something to be said for the idea that a snail, our snail, which is highly tolerant, might be able to reinvade a system, colonise it, and effectively what? restore what we call ecosy- some ecosystem services. Oh, to help manage an otherwise degraded environment. Potentially, yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen any really convincing work done on that, but it's, it's, it's an idea anyway. Uh, well, okay. So the, the the little snail isn't isn't all all bad necessarily, but not necessarily. Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, they're 
as I was saying before, the, the mechanisms for overcoming the filters and obstacles that you face as an invasive species are quite amazing. I mean, if you, if you think about it, over generations, you and your ancestor have co-evolved co in your native range. Um, you've co-evolved to perfectly suit the environment you're in. Um, and then, effectively, as an invasive species, you're plucked from that environment and you're put into a whole new novel system where you're facing all sorts of environmental conditions and predators and prey that you've, you've never um, met before. So how do you cope with that? And, and, um, and these guys adapt or adapt or they... Adapt or tolerate. Or they the tolerate. And sometimes it'll be to your advantage. You can imagine, say you're a crayfish and you've adapted massive claws to fight mm. off... Um, I don't know. Murray Cod. Murray Cod, if you like. Um, and then you're plucked out of that system and you're put into a new system where there are no predators. There are no... Um, no other organisms that can prey upon you. Well, suddenly you've got these big claws that you can use for your own your own advantage, and uh, you can become the bully, I guess. <laughs> so I, my my point is that often we, when we look at invasive species, we can see that they're not necessarily perfectly adapted to this new environment they're in, and yet often they're very very effective at. Um, dominating a community uh, wow well <laughs> oh the little snow I, i'm still kind of coming up to the idea that you know you can start with something as innocuous as a little snail and then you know it leads to deeper insights like the meaning of sex and uh, how and how, how evolution works and so on i think we'll break to a little track here and this one is um Keys and green or blue skies? I think that is uh, Adrian. What, you, this blue, is the one you brought in for us. Yeah, blue skies. It's by a group in Melbourne called Big Words. Um, they're kind of like a modern-day Australian hip-hop kind of group, which isn't usually my genre of music, but I really did like this track. I also particularly like um, chose to play it today because of the concept of blue sky science. So obviously we're talking about really applied work here. We're talking about um, an invasive species and how we can manage it. But I think there is a lot to be said for blue sky science, um, which is the concept of asking questions just for the sake of asking just questions. Because, just because it's fascinating and, well, the universe is fundamentally a fascinating place and uh, I've got to say I'm really enjoying a, a conversation today. Adrian Dusting, PhD student at the Institute of Applied Ecology, University of Canberra. Blue skies. I got blue skies. Seems like the whole world's a dream. You'll never break me. Seems like the uh, yes, blue skies here on Fuzzy Logic 2XX and we're talking snails. Adrian Dusting and PhD student at the Institute of Applied Ecology at the University of Canberra. Now we talk about the life cycle of the snail and you've been looking at the researching these little creatures and what, what is your research? What, what's, tell us what, what's the goal of your research Adrian? Okay, so overall what we're looking at is the idea of how organisms can adapt to stressful environments. And obviously invasion is a particularly stressful situation. Um, what we're interested in looking at, is it the case that we've got lots of different specialist snails 
that are locally adapted to the areas they inhabit? Or instead, do we have one or very few generalist um, genotypes, if you like, um, of snail that are inhabiting a wide range of different environments across a large geographical range? Uh, now, these things uh, reproduce asexually. They're like bananas, actually. Do you know bananas don't get no sex? Yeah, I, I do know that. It's it's slightly different, but but similar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, tell me, how, how different in in what way? I mean, bananas just. Yeah, sorry. What 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 is the difference? Sorry. Um, uh, oh, that's not. You're a asking me a tricky one now. Okay. The, the okay. bananas are propagated um, using. Uh, so it's different. It's not right. internal fertilization. Uh, okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. So they're, they're from cuttings and so on, right? That's right. And so humans reproduce, right? But so these little snails grow their own little offspring inside their bodies, which right. That's so right. they they internally um, fertilize their own eggs. That's right. So it's the development of unreduced uh, and unfertilized eggs. Okay. Yeah. So parthenogenesis is what it's called. Right. Yeah. Right. Which, if you're an invasive species, as we were saying before, is potentially advantageous in terms of reproduction. You, if you're a female and you can produce your own live young, then you don't have a need for a male. You don't need to find a mate, which might be quite rare in a new environment. Um, but it comes at the evolutionary cost of not necessarily being able to rapidly and effectively adapt to a, your new environment. And I mean, I think that's that's at the crux of it, really. Like, if you're an invasive species, you are either you're going to be faced with new environmental conditions that mean you either get knocked off straight away, or you have to be able to tolerate that new environment by being a generalist, mm. or you need to be able to adapt rapidly as a species. And if you're an asexual, if you're an asexual species, then you have potentially quite limited genetic diversity. See, whereas Sex, the type that you and I are used to, yeah, um, yeah. creates genetic recombination and massively increases, potentially massively increases genetic diversity. These asexual snails um, must rely on the, I guess, weaker evolutionary force of mutation. Right, so, but you're, so you're looking at the genetic diversity of these snails across Australia, is that but, right? That's right, across southeastern Australia. So all my study sites are in Victoria. And what we do is we go to a stream, we sample the population there and we look at the genetic diversity within those populations and between populations. And are you um, doing, looking just for specific genetic markers, little particular parts of the genome, so using the, uh, what they call the, the PCR, the polymer chain, chain polymerase chain reaction yeah. amp to amplify the copies and then, is that, is that what you're doing? That's right. So what we're using is a type of marker called microsatellite marker. And what that allows us to do is target a particular section of the DNA, uh, nuclear DNA, extract that, amplify it using PCR, as you say, and then compare that section of DNA between individuals and between populations. And what we're trying to get at there is to look at, is it the case that we've got one genotype, so one set of snails that is identical at those microsatellite markers, mm -hmm. or lots of different um, clonal families mm -hmm. that differ at these different, um, at, the, at these microsatellite markers. And if they are different, did they all come from one individual in Australia, or did they come from lots of different individuals arriving in Australia 
in different places at different times. So c can any genetic variation occur even though they are asexual reproducers? They, it can. Um, so through mutation, genetic vi uh, variation arises, genetic diversity arises. Um, this is considered a much slower evolutionary force um, than... But, no, but it's still possible. Combination. But it's still possible, yes. Do you, do you think there would be any advantage in mapping their entire genome, like we've done with the nematode and the fruit fly and humans? Potentially. I guess you can always get a more complete picture by mapping the entire genome. Um, the... Yeah, but, but I think the markers we've got at the moment are effective... Um, largely because they are asexual and they have very limited genetic diversity. And so you don't actually need a very high level of resolution, I guess, to be able to... So it is enough for your purposes, in other words? That's right, yeah. yeah. Okay, so once you've got the results of this and say, well, are you willing to guess which way it's going to go yet or is it too early <laughs> for you to say? It's, well, parts of it I can... I can uh, allow the listeners to know at this point um which is we we are finding a limited level of diversity across victoria um so there are differences between populations and we have quite an interesting situation where we go to a particular site at a on a stream and we will find just one genotype present there okay so very low within site variation mm -hmm. but between sites we find quite a few differences and so that te seems to indicate that we've got a number of different clonal families mm -hmm. um, that are grouped in particular habitats what we're doing now is going on to look at whether this is due to adaptation to the local environment so we get different clonal families mm -hmm. from different habitats and we look at their fitness, so their reproductive fitness, how fast they reproduce, how quick they grow, things like that, um, under different environmental conditions that reflect the different habitats from which they originated. And we take this as a sign of potential adaptation to that local environment. Ah, okay. So is that telling you something fundamental about uh, the genetic processes of asexual reproduction? Or is it really more just about this particular snail? How, how far would you generalise this? It's Well, it's obviously telling us uh, a lot about this particular snail. I, I think it has the potential to say a lot about asexual reproduction as well. Um, in terms of asexual reproduction is generally considered, as, we, as we've been discussing, to limit genetic diversity. But if we find that these snails are locally adapted to their local habitats and environments, then that seems to indicate that they've retained enough evolutionary potential to still effectively adapt, uh -huh. which is a, a big deal <laughs> if, if you're going to be invasive and asexual, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, well, well, well sex, the, the, the role of sex in evolution is one of the big, the big, big, big ticket topics isn't it? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. We've, um, we've got a, uh, a researcher from the US who specifically looks at this question of the cost of sex and why some animals remain um, sexual, as in remain able to reproduce sexually. Um, this research is coming out in November. In uh, the 14th of Fe uh, November, she's giving a seminar at the IAE, if you're interested. Very fun. 
<coughs> so we will, uh, of course, we'll give that uh, some plenty of promotion as the time comes, and maybe we'll come out and we'll uh, join in and uh, record a bit of the audio from this conference. Uh, actually, which is probably a good time for me just a quick, quick sidestep here, and that is that there is uh, a marine biology conference going on this week which is hosted by uh, University of Canberra with the CSIRO. And some of the fascinating topics that are going on are the uh, overview of the Bureau of Marine Sciences, spanning uh, the continental shelf, uh, seafloor mapping using satellites and bio-optics to monitor water quality, uh, marine urbanisation, latest ecological engineering for offshore platforms, marinas, and so on. And we've got, of course, dredging going up at uh, the ironically named Abbott Point, uh, how consistent approaches are to measuring fish stocks and so on. Now, the oceans are, of course, a vast and critical natural resource for Australia, and uh, so our understanding of the, of the marine ecosystem is, is critical. And, of course, our little snails here are freshwater snails. That's um, right. But would they um, survive in brackish water? They sure do. They do? Yeah, they are, oh, they're superstars of invasion, that's for sure. They can, they've can. they been found from in geothermal spring-fed systems right through to basically open sea. So really highly brackish systems. So these little guys are pretty tough, pretty adaptable. They can go anywhere, create havoc wherever they go. Now, given the research that you've done, mm-hmm. and uh, we, we've established that these things are a bit of a pest... Uh, although possibly with some benefits, if we generally may, yep. <laughs> maybe in some certain limited uh, environments, w- what can we do about them? Uh, is, is there any, are there any controls, any ways of, of mitigating their their negative impacts? Um, not that, not that's been. Der- found so far through research um in the u.s there's quite large public campaign around the idea of not moving the snail around on fishing gear so they're really highly resistant to desiccation uh, to drying out because of that operculum um and we know that they're moved around by recreational anglers on their fishing gear on their waders and on their boats and on anchors and things like that yeah that's right and so i there isn't really a public campaign around it in Australia, but I very much urge you, if you are an angler, to consider very strongly the idea of drying out your waders and your boat and your fishing gear between um, sites. So when you move around the um, landscape, making sure that you're drying out your boat or your waders for over 24 hours or um, even spraying them down with um, detergent and things like that as well can be useful. Ah, uh, uh. Now, um... We, the, the, the track we play, I said, take note of that. We'll be watching you, the fishermen, uh, <laughs> what you do with your fishing gear, uh, because we don't want these things going. And look, and if you want to protect your fishing environment, then uh, that would be a good motivator, wouldn't it? You say, Absolutely. don't introduce these things because they will damage uh, whatever fishing locality you might be going to. Absolutely. So we as freshwater ecologists like to turn up to a site and sample the bugs there and find really diverse range, like a really wide range of bugs representing a really healthy community and it's the same same is true for a healthy fishing environment as well right. you want you want to find a wide range of water bugs that the fish can use as a food resource now now just a quick note we, we're not going to cover this in the few minutes we have left but uh you chose the track blue sky and blue sky research and of course that's being it's just curiosity driven research um do you see a real tension between doing something that, that is 
um, targeted for application, maybe results in direct profit versus something which is just like, wow, did you know this? And are we, this a news going with? Um, yeah, I, I look for, for some ecology does tend to be quite applied. Um, I, I think that we as ecologists could do ourselves a service by asking some of those bigger questions just for the sake of asking them. Um, obviously, I'm from the Institute for Applied Ecology, and there is a lot of good outcomes that come out of the Institute in terms of management of our freshwater systems as, and other systems as well. But um, I think there is a lot to be said for asking those questions. If physicists get to ask cool questions like, you know, if you take a spaceship across the event horizon, what happens? I wonder what the ecological equivalent of that question is. I, I, I do like that question, Adrian. That, that is a brilliant segue because guess what? Next week on Fuzzy Logic, we are hitting the big ticket questions. One of them, and that is the history of life on the planet. Three billion years or thereabouts in 60 minutes and we have our friend uh, long-term friend of fuzzy logic dr charlie lionweaver who is a great character always hugely entertaining and my brain needs hours to cool down after uh, i've i've <laughs> had a session with charlie because he's such a big thinker and uh, another friend dr jochen brox and he's from the uh, anu and he's looking for chemical signatures of life in geology like looking at oil reserves and this marker this chemical marker indicates that life was operating back then three billion and he's right on the border of when there was no life to when there was life fascinating stuff and some really really great characters i'm really looking forward to that and if that's not enough to stretch your brain, the following week we have another friend of Fuzzy Logic, Professor Jeff Louis and Fiona, his uh, amazing PhD student. Uh, and we are going to be talking about just a little thing, consciousness. Hmm. Oh, crikey. My brain hurts just thinking about consciousness. Fascinating subject and really, really difficult one. Uh, but I love it, and which kind of leads into a Ask Fuzzy question that appears in the Fairfax media that we uh, have each Sunday. And somebody has asked me about bird vision. Do you ever, Adrian? Do you ever look at a bird and just think, what do they see? Uh, no, I don't often think that. <laughs> There's some cool research around that. Those questions, though, yeah. about birds shutting down one side of their brain oh, and things like that. Yes, sleeping with one eye open, literally. Yeah, and fish too. Do yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So my friend, who is the naturalist at the Australian Museum, he said, "Jeepers, that's a hard question." So he's had to really trawl out some expertise. Uh, what do what does birds see? They see uh, spectrum uh, parts of the spectrum that we don't see. And uh, so that's that's in the future. Ask Fuzzy today, the deep one, or fairly uh, doer one. Uh, how does dementia cause death? Uh, which is, uh, yeah, um, it's fascinating stuff. And one I have in my to-do pile is why are ceilings in houses the height they are? Why aren't they lower? Uh, <laughs> would that not be an energy-saving uh, measure? Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Funny examples of the sort of the quirky things that come up in our Ask Fuzzy column. Oh, and uh, someone also asked about stem cells. Anyway, uh, keep your eyes on that, and or you can send your questions to askfuzzy at zoho.com. Well, that's it. Time to go. Leave you uh, uh, to your Sunday coming up this afternoon. Biodegrade. I see Alison has appeared outside, and she'll have good stuff for you.
That's it for Fuzzy Logic, and thank you, Adrian Dusting. Thank you very much, Rod. PhD student, Institute of Applied Ecology at the University of Canberra. And time for us to go. Catch you later. <laughs>